Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. everyone. Happy Friday. Alex and I are both a little zonked after a whirlwind week-long visit from out-of-town family, which was very nice. I'm lucky to have very sweet parents and a big sister who I adore. In any case, because we were largely offline with said visitors, we don't have a guest for you this week, but we are diving into a number of news pieces that caught our attention and that whether or not you miss them, you might want to learn a little bit more about too. With that, we're going to jump right into things, starting with the wild goings-on in the public market today. If you invest in tech, today might be a good day to just look away. As you probably know by now, investors hammered tech stocks with the Nasdaq falling 4.2%, bringing its losses for the month to more than 13%, its worst showing since October of 2008. The carnage was led by Amazon, which posted its first quarterly loss in seven years. The online retail giant's stock fell by more than 14%, its biggest one-day drop since at least 2014. AMZN is down a whopping 26% for the year. Amazon is not alone. As the Wall Street Journal reports today, collectively, the FANG stocks have lost more than $1 trillion in market value this month, the most since Facebook started trading in May 2012. Among these, Netflix is closing in on its worst month in at least a decade. Last week, its shares tumbled more than 30% after its earnings report showed the company lost subscribers. There is plenty of blame to spread around. The Fed's decision to raise interest rates in response to inflation fears, coupled with the specter of a recession caused in part by China's decision to lock down its factories in response to COVID, has everyone on edge. And then, of course, there's Ukraine. The only good news may be that consumers keep spending. From February to March, spending increased by 1%. While this may be a lagging indicator, I'll take it. After all, when confronted with so much bad news, what's wrong with a little retail therapy? Up next, a look at Hoppin. But first, a word from our sponsor. Startup founders have enough to worry about without stressing over their company's next round of financing. Unburden yourself by raising an equity crowdfunding round through Seed Invest and get instantly connected to the platform's community of over 600,000 investors who are ready and willing to back your business. Hundreds of startups have found success on Seed Invest, and yours could be next. Find out more or apply today at go.seedinvest.com/vc. That's go.seedinvest.com slash VC. Speaking of companies whose valuations are falling like a rock, the Financial Times wrote earlier this week about Hopin, a three-year-old virtual event startup whose rise it sometimes has reminded us of WeWork. Like WeWork, Hopin runs an interesting business, but one that VCs had clearly begun to overfund at a point. Launched in 2019, the company shot to fame after COVID struck with a conferencing product that seemed tailor-made for lockdowns. Over at TechCrunch, where I'm an editor, we became one of apparently 15,000 outfits that were using the platform every month, and we had a great experience with the product. Still, 
The VCs went overboard, as VCs tend to do sometimes, with firms like Andreessen Horowitz and General Catalyst providing the company more than a billion dollars in a little over a year and assigning the outfit, only two years old at the time, a stunning $7.8 billion valuation. In fact, that private market valuation made Hoppin's now 27-year-old founder, Johnny Bufferat, Britain's youngest self-made billionaire on paper. As it happens, he's not doing so terribly off paper either, as the Financial Times revealed in its Monday report. With firms like IVP and Tiger clamoring to invest last year, Bufferat smartly sold $195 million worth of his shares, according to Financial Times analysis. Unfortunately, giving the company so much money with so few strings attached is starting to look like a pretty bad idea. While the company once bragged about those 15,000 monthly events available on its platform, today, says the FT, there are fewer than 500, a 30-fold drop. The slump in listings is already being felt throughout the organization. In February, the company laid off 12% of its staff, or 138 people, according to the FT. More, the market price for Hoppin's shares fell 41% during the first quarter on Zambato, which operates a private secondary trading market. With COVID receding into the rearview mirror, fingers crossed, you can imagine this picture gets worse from here. The VCs will likely argue that they had no choice. They had to get on the train before it left the station. And many of the firms involved can surely afford to write off the investment, if it eventually comes down to it in a worst-case scenario, from which we remain far, by the way. Still, this is a story I'd expect we're going to see many versions of over the coming months, given that, let's face it, VCs completely abdicated the role they previously played, working closely with startups, giving teams just enough money to innovate, and ensuring that founders' interests were aligned with their own by limiting how much a CEO could sell of his or her own stake before an actual exit event, like an IPO or a sale. Maybe Bufferat, who still astonishingly owns just less than 40% of the company and retains voting control, can turn things around. According to one person who spoke with the FT, Hoppin crossed $100 million in annual revenue last year and has not needed to spend much of the money it raised. Of course, if it doesn't, he still walks away with at least $200 million. In the end, he could be the only one who wins, and the VCs will only have themselves to blame. The soap opera that is Elon Musk's pursuit of Twitter had more than a couple of twists and turns this week. The most recent news is that free speech on Twitter may no longer be quite so free. According to an article in Reuters today, Musk has told bankers interested in financing his deal that he plans to implement, quote, new ways to make money out of tweets that contain important information or go viral. These include charging a fee when a third-party website wants to quote or embed a tweet from verified individuals or organizations. He could also cut out executive and board pay, reduce headcount, and try to get out of Twitter's office leases. Earlier this month, for example, Musk asked his Twitter followers if Twitter should convert its SF headquarters into a homeless shelter, quote, since no one shows up anyway. Even with these potential cost savings, however, Musk will still have a mountain of debt that he will have to service, some $25.5 billion in loans, according to Axios. And that's not even the beginning of Musk's troubles. Given Tesla's dependence on the massive China market, Musk could face pressure from Beijing to tame tweets on subjects ranging from the Uyghurs to Hong Kong and Taiwan. Meanwhile, European Union Commissioner Thierry Breton told the Financial Times this week that Twitter must police illegal or harmful content or risk being banned. As Twitter insiders told the Times yesterday, 
Musk doesn't appear to understand the issues that he and the company will face if he drops its guardrails around speech. Given the many different pressures Musk faces, Lauren Silva Laughlin and Gina Chan of Reuters doubt the deal will go through. In addition to trying to navigate the content police in Europe, China, and the U.S., Musk will have to prop up Tesla, which has seen its stock price decline by over 20% since Musk first revealed his stake in Twitter. Fortunately, the three other companies where he is CEO are private. As Laughlin and Chan point out, Twitter's stock is currently trading 11% below his offer price, a telling sign that the market doesn't think Musk's Twitter acquisition is a sure thing. Yes, Musk will face a $1 billion breakup fee if he bails on the Twitter deal, but surely that's chump change compared to the challenges he will face if he goes through with it. We shall see. Earlier today, Bill Gurley, a longtime general partner at Benchmark who stepped away from an active role with a venture firm, but who continues to advise companies as a board member and as an armchair quarterback on Twitter, tweeted to his half a million followers today that, quote, an entire generation of entrepreneurs and tech investors built their entire perspectives on valuation during the second half of a 13-year amazing bull market run. The unlearning process, he added, could be painful, surprising, and unsettling to many. I anticipate denial, wrote Gurley. No doubt Gurley is right that many founders are in for a shock, given the stories beginning to emerge about revoked term sheets, old and onerous deal terms returning to the conversation, and falling valuations. What to do about these is the big question. For his part, Gurley this afternoon offered two pieces of counsel, including to tell his followers that previous, quote, all-time highs when it comes to valuation are now, quote, completely irrelevant. The game, he suggested, just changed, so, quote, Forget those prices happened, he advised. He also called valuation multiples a hack proxy that are dangerous to use and suggested that with some market froth evaporating right now, investors are very likely to focus increasingly on free cash flow and earnings when it comes to deciding whether or not to fund a company or the valuation a startup should be assigned. What matters now, he added, is the quality of revenue and earnings. As for what that means, Gurley pointed back to a piece he authored in 2011 from his Above the Crowd column, which listeners can find online. In a piece about the difference between high-quality revenue companies and low-quality revenue companies, he writes about the feature of high-quality revenue companies, including a sustainable competitive advantage for startups. How easy is it for someone else to provide the same product or service that you provide, he asked at the time. Companies with little to no competitive advantage or companies with low barriers to entry are bound to struggle right now as the market turns. We're thinking, for example, of the many companies to raise money to aggregate third-party businesses on Amazon. Do any of them have a competitive advantage? Looking in from the outside, it's hard to see how. Gurley has also written that high-quality earnings tie to network effects, meaning that the value to the incremental customer is a direct function of the customers already in the system. He has argued that earnings are high-quality when they're predictable and consistent. He has also suggested that in a more rational market, an over-reliance on particular partners is problematic and that investors will discount the valuation of any company that's heavily dependent on another partner in some way or form. Gurley knows of which he speaks. He has invested and thrived during times when there are no checks or balances or governance. He's also invested through two downturns, one of them the massive dot-com boom and bust of the late 90s. Founders who are right now wondering how to safeguard their companies or else just trying to understand why their valuation might be half what it was three months ago might benefit from checking out his past work. Gurley can be overly skeptical at times about the market, but over time he has been more right than wrong. And now, just when you were saying to yourself, what I really need is a drone to take selfies, along comes Snap with a new offering, the Pixie. 
The Pixie device launches from your hand and flutters around you, following or in SnapSpeak, orbiting around you and your chums taking photos or videos. The price? A mere $230. Snap realizes that the Pixie will only appeal to a limited subset of its user base, many of whom are cash-strapped teens. But at a partner summit, Wired reporter Lauren Good sensed Snap had an ulterior motive— to position itself as a social media platform focused on the real world, not the virtual worlds that Meta is building. Snap even labeled the event Back to Reality. CEO Evan Spiegel believes Snap's focus makes it a happier place. Spiegel even referenced a study commissioned by Snap that claims Snap is ranked the, quote, number one happiest platform when compared to other apps and that 90% of Snapchatters say they feel comfortable and connected when they use the app. Unfortunately, it's doubtful that Snap's $230 selfie drone will create the kind of separation between Snap and Meta that Spiegel evidently wants. The stock prices for both Snap and Meta have fallen approximately 40% since the beginning of the year. Thanks so much for listening, everybody, and thank you to Seedinvest, our sponsor of this week's podcast. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you here next week.